Better? Okay. A number of years ago, uh, a person painted a mental image for me of the functional centrality of the gospel that I continue to find clarifying and very motivating for me in my daily obedience to Christ. I, I didn't know it at the time, but this person actually borrowed the image from leadership uh, guru and, and author Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. Um, though Collins might not have been aware of how apt his metaphor was when applied to the gospel, it has since been used that way in my life, and I am thankful for it. So here's the image. Picture a flywheel. A flywheel. Now, not the sort that you might find attached to a little weaver's spindle or a potter's wheel. I'm thinking of a gigantic, cumbersome, industrial flywheel. Steel construction, several tons in weight. Can you picture it? That flywheel is the gospel. That massive flywheel is the message of the life and suffering and death and resurrection and soon return of Jesus. And like a flywheel, the message of the gospel is capable of producing enormous amounts of energy. Not only that, but like a flywheel, the message of the gospel is capable of collecting and gathering momentum for our lives and transferring it to our lives. And, like a flywheel, the message of the gospel, because of its size and ponderousness, can take some time. And it can take some deliberate, concentrated effort to get that flywheel moving, even one revolution. The first rotation of a, of a flywheel can be as arduous and unspectacular as listening to a sermon on Sunday morning. But, over time... It begins to pick up speed. You come back next week, and the flywheel's made another turn. Over time, you pick up great speed, and you start to see how the message of the gospel isn't just theoretical, but it's very practical. It's got useful application in the trenches of Monday through Saturday. And it does require diligent and slow processing on the front end, but eventually connections begin to be made. And when you're connected to the flywheel of the gospel, your life starts to have power. The doctrine of union with Christ works that way. The doctrine of union with Christ is an engine, and it's powerful enough to drive the practical details of your daily life. Union with Christ, the teaching of Ephesians and union with Christ, is an engine powerful enough to drive the practical details of your daily life. Since June this past year, our church has been studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians in a series entitled, All Things in Him. All Things in Him. Those four words are drawn from Ephesians chapter 1.
We'll do this until we have new batteries. Does that sound good? Last month, on kickoff Sunday, we began to see the Apostle Paul put a shoulder to this flywheel and begin to move it for us. He began to make clear of the connections of the flywheel of the gospel to our everyday life. And so, in Ephesians chapter 4, we began to study unity in Christ, diversity in Christ, maturity in Christ. Last week, Seth opened up chapter 4 where we looked at learning in Christ. All the while making clear the connections to the flywheel of the gospel. Now, this week I couldn't decide exactly what to call the sermon because that is evidenced and that I've got two different titles, two different places. Uh, This could either be Love in Christ or it could be Life in Christ. Both themes are present in today's text and they're both in your bulletin materials. It says Love on the Order of Service and Life on the Sermon Outline. Either way, we're going to see both emphases today. The point is that we're going to get real world and hands-on this morning with how to love and how to live. The doctrine of union with Christ is an engine powerful enough to drive the everyday details of your life. For example, union with Christ displays itself in your honesty. That's point number one. Union with Christ displays itself in your honesty. Honesty. Take a look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Ephesians 4, 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You see, verse 25 has four components to it, at least four. First off, there is a link with what's come before. Secondly, there's a negative exhortation. There's also a positive exhortation. And then finally, we have a connection to the flywheel. First, notice what's come before. Notice the link with the word, therefore. Last week's sermon and the community group study questions used the language of putting off and putting on. It's drawn from verses 22 to 24. So Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, Paul compares the functional centrality of the gospel in our lives, not to a, to a flywheel, but to putting off old clothing and putting on new clothing. So we're commanded in verse 22 to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Just like clothing. You see it? Put off your old self, put on the new self. Now, I think Paul is still thinking that way, not just in verse 25, but actually straight through the end of this chapter. We see this rhythm, and in some cases, the exact language. So we read in verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So, Put off falsehood, put on truth-telling. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we could unfold uh, this verse, but the way I'd like to approach it is to compare and examine the connection between the command in the first half of the verse and the motive that's in the second half of the verse. Motives are, are everything to me these days. Put off falsehood, put on truth-telling. Why? 
for we are members of one another. See that in verse 25? When Paul says members, he's clearly alluding to the reality that in the church we are the body of Christ. We are members of one another. It's one of Paul's master images in union with Christ, and we've already accounted it repeatedly in this letter. Christ is the head, we are the body, and we are all different parts of the body. We indeed are members of one another. Now, do you see how Paul would think that it becomes us to speak the truth to one another if indeed we are members of one another? Fifth century church father Theodoret explained it this way. He said, honesty is the way a body functions. The eyes, for example, when they see cliffs and steep caverns, instantly report them to the feet so that they may turn aside and protect the whole body from harm. That's that's really helpful. Of course that makes sense. It becomes the members of the same body to report accurately to one another in the interest of preserving the health of the body. Now, You may think that believing that we are one body in Christ is the easy part and that actually putting away falsehood and telling the truth to one another is the hard part, but that's not really how it is. When we deal falsely with one another, whether failing to tell the final 10% or whether we are exaggerating at inappropriate times or whether we intentionally deceive one another, When we deal in falsehood with each other, we are actually failing to believe the gospel. We may say that we are one body in Christ, but if we're honest with one another, we really don't believe it. Here's an image. Uh, About 30 years ago, there was a modern take on the the old tale of the prince and the pauper. Not a Christian film. Uh, It's a film called Trading Places. Eddie Murphy played the pauper turned prince. And even though he was living in a palatial mansion and he had beautiful clothes and he had a lucrative career as a commodities broker, early on in the movie, he still didn't believe it was all his. And so early on, he's asked by the men who arranged the reversal of fortune, they say, how do you like your place? And he says, I like it. It's it's very nice. They say to him, this is your home. And he says, right. They say, it it belongs to you. He says, I I like my home. It's it's very nice. All the while, Eddie Murphy is slipping items into his pockets that are in the room. He's robbing himself, as it were. The men are watching him do it, and they say to him, while helping him empty out his pockets, this is your house. These are your personal, private possessions you will only be stealing from yourself. Isn't that something like what Paul is saying here? Our behavior reveals what we really believe. Our behavior always flows from our beliefs. Always. Why should we put off falsehood and put on truth-telling? Because we are members of one another. If you are a Christian, the other believers around you are members of the same body of which you are a part. And so to be dishonest to them is to be dishonest to yourself. 
The gospel imperative of truth-telling flows from the gospel indicative that Christ has made us one body and he's done it through the cross. Ephesians 2.15 tells us that. So verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So test yourself. Your union with Christ displays itself in your inclination to be honest with others. Second example of our text today. Your union with Christ displays itself in your anger. Your union with Christ displays itself in your anger. Now in verse 26 all the way to verse 30, we're going to start to see the gospel flywheel start to pick up some momentum. We've already seen Paul make a connection between our union with Christ and our honesty with each other. Let's watch him do the same thing now with anger. Listen to Ephesians 4, 26 to 30. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. One thing I'd just simply like to flag and then set aside for a handful of weeks from now is verse 28 about about stealing on the one hand and honest work on the other. Um, I'm not entirely sure while Paul says that here in verse 28, unless it's the word honest that tips him off because he was talking about honesty earlier. Um, But his more immediate flow of thought in verses 26 to 31 deal with anger. But I do know that verse 28 is important. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take verse 28 and we're going to add it to the sermon, Lord willing, on November 9th when we're studying the topic of vocation in Christ. I think it'll do better justice if we take it up then as opposed to today. So let's just concern ourselves with the overriding burden of this section of Scripture, which is anger. Our union with Christ displays itself in our anger. First thing we might notice here in these verses is that not all anger is sinful. That much is clear from the first half of verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. So from this verse, as well as a number of other verses, Old to New Testament, we can deduce that some anger is holy. Some anger is godly. It had better be, because God's anger certainly is holy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three members of the Trinity at different points of the Bible are described as angry, wrathful, outraged, at different points in Scripture. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. How do you do that? What would that look like? Well, the Puritan Matthew Henry put it well when he said, if we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. That's a good place to start. Just in case you want it for your fridge, I'm going to say that again. If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. This is why we read the Puritans. (laughs) 
This will richly repay your meditation. Um, One practical tip for us in dealing with holy anger, anger at sin, would be verse 26. Keep short accounts with one another. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Verse 27 contains the reason. Because you'll give an opportunity to the devil otherwise. Give no opportunity to the devil. So notice that Satan's opportunity comes when we leave the lingering door of anger ajar. That's all it takes. We hold the key here, not the evil one. Reducing Satan's opportunity is our responsibility. Some of you know that we have a dog at home. Uh, Her name is Sophie. She's a Shih Tzu rescue from Chicago. What you may not know is that Sophie loves to eat toilet paper. (laughs) If she can slip into the bathroom and perch herself up onto the wall, she'll eat it right off the roll. She'll take it and she'll run like she's TPing the living room all around. It takes her about 2.5 seconds. She will pull the roll clear into the rest of the house if you give her the opportunity. I'm sure my family wouldn't be exactly thrilled with me drawing a comparison between our cute little Shih Tzu and the evil one, but there is a parallel. All we have to do to prevent this is shut the door. She can't open the door. She's only in business when we leave the door cracked. She's an opportunist, and so is our enemy. He is limited in what he can get done. He's looking for opportunities. He's looking for open doors. And when you leave the door, even of holy anger cracked, he gets in there and begins to work. So keep short accounts with the Lord, with your family, with other members of this church. And as you ponder that, think about a couple of different scriptures along the way. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. So we should ask the question, should love cover this one too? Proverbs says it's our, it's our glory to overlook an offense. Or would love dictate that we lovingly confront another person in their sin? Galatians 6 1 says, Brothers, if any one of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. So love, on the one hand, covers. On the other hand, love confronts. And only wise love knows what time it is. Now notice the gospel connection here. The imperatives are in verse 29. Put off corrupting talk. Put on speech. Only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Those are gospel imperatives. Well, where's the motive? Put off corrupting talk. Put on encouraging speech. That's good advice. But where's the good news? Don't miss the indicative in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 30 isn't just good advice. It's good news. We live with the Holy Spirit's sovereign seal upon us. This is the second time we've encountered this truth in our study of Ephesians. The first time was chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which say, When you heard the gospel 
and believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So that's our, our future. And Paul is saying that because of that seal upon us, we should live in view of that in the present. By the Spirit's gracious initiative, He has sealed us as belonging to Christ. And when we allow corrupting and corrosive and unwholesome talk to escape our lips, we grieve Him. Especially when He is the very resource that's given to us to avoid that sort of talk in the first place. Everywhere we go, we are wearing His seal on us and we bring dishonor to God when we're quick to anger in such situations or we wear that anger self-righteously. So there's a way to do anger righteously and your union with Christ displays itself in how you handle your anger. Third example. Your union with Christ displays itself in your forgiveness. Your union with Christ displays itself in your forgiveness. Notice once again, the language, or at least the categories of put off, put on, are right here in verses 31 and 32. And also notice that the imperatives are rooted in a gospel indicative. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Here's the put off. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slammer, uh, slammer, clamor and slander be put away from you. Slammer too. Along with all malice. That's what you put off. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So what we're to put off is located in verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. These are all reactions. That's why we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit here. These are reactions. Most of these are not premeditated. Put those off. And put on, verse 32, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Now, those are imperatives. They're commands. And it's all very good advice. It's just not good news. But do you see the good news? It is tucked away there in verse 32. Kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So not only do we see gospel language here, we actually have an explicit reference to our favorite doctrine in Ephesians, union with Christ. God in Christ forgave you. Now in my experience, this is where the gospel flywheel really moves in my life. Nothing, anyone, anywhere, for any reason, could possibly do to me would not warrant my immediate forgiveness in view of the titanic debt of my sin that Christ died on the cross to achieve for me. It's not even close. I have my hands full with myself. Who am I not to forgive another person in Christ? I'll tell you what, bitterness is a bad sign. It's a bad sign. If you allow resentment and cynicism and sourness to linger it will seriously impede your ability to forgive other people. You'll start to feel entitled, and you're not. I was at a a pastor's meeting this past Thursday, and one of the pastors from Freshwater asked me how I was doing. What do you think I told him? Better than I deserve. And he laughed. He just didn't have a category for it. I thought, I'm serious. 
doing better than I deserve. So don't focus on what they've done to you. Put that off. Rather, set your gaze on what God in Christ has done for you. You will be lightning quick to forgive other people. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. One final example, and we're done. Your union with Christ displays itself in your love. These are all aspects of love. But now Paul's going to be explicit in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Your union with Christ displays itself in your love, particularly your love for other people. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us. Gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now these are some heavy-duty imperatives, aren't they? Verses 1 and 2, they're considerable. Be imitators of God. Walk in love everywhere. Paul couldn't set the bar any higher, could he? Be imitators of God. What hope would we have for that sort of command? I hope you see it built right into the fabric of verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Children should look like their father. In fact, children can't help but look like their father. Amen? I received a text from our dear brother, Dervis. I suppose this was yesterday. As some of you know, a love opportunity opened itself up this past week. Dervis had a car, which he is unable to drive himself. Uh, needed it to be driven to Spring Lake Park on a dime on Saturday. He needed it, I'm sorry, Friday. He needed it Friday. And so we put the request out there. Now, this is not Spring Park. Spring Lake Park on a Friday. Can we get this done? Dervis texts me. Sir, Roger offered to help me yesterday at 3 p.m., but already Aaron had stepped in and the car is now home. I want to thank you so much. Finally, I find myself in this moment in the same mood as I was in your office, sobbing and weeping. It is hard for me because I never knew how much I was going to be loved at MEFC. And I just texted him back and said, Indeed, you are loved that much, my brother. And if loved by us, then how much more by your heavenly Father? Jesus says in John 16, 27, The Father himself loves you. When you are loved, not because you are lovely, but because God is love, when you're loved that way, you go out of your way for opportunities to love people the way you've been loved. You look for those opportunities. You lay yourself in the way of those opportunities. Christ gave himself up for us that we might learn to give ourselves up for one another, especially in the church. Your union with Christ displays itself in your love. The doctrine of union with Christ is an engine powerful enough to drive the practical details of your life. 
Your union with Christ displays itself in your honesty. Your union with Christ displays itself in your anger. Your union with Christ displays itself in your forgiveness. And your union with Christ displays itself in your love. Now, next week, we're going to take a look at how the doctrine of union with Christ relates particularly to sexual purity with a sermon entitled, Light in Christ. But right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, those of us in this church who thrill at weighty and deep discussions about doctrine, I I pray that those of us would see everywhere the, the practical implications of this doctrine of union with Christ. Lord, especially those of us who are, are bent toward theory and being more thinky, I ask that you would transform our hearts to live lives of love and forgiveness and truth-telling and patience with each other. And Lord, for those who, who expect and want the cookies on the bottom shelf, I pray that each person who, who thinks real practically, real pragmatically about their life, that they would see that there's no practice that's not doctrinal. Every opportunity we have to forgive, every opportunity we have to be slow to anger, to tell the truth, to love, it is attached to this massive flywheel of union with Christ. Doctrine's the answer to everything. So thank you, Father, for the Apostle Paul both doctrinal and practical. Would you continue to work out the details, Lord, of this beautiful teaching of union with Christ through serve us, Lord, through the community group study questions as we get together this week, as we roll up our sleeves and apply what we're learning, transform our church. May we truly be the body of Christ this week. In Jesus' great name we ask it. Amen.